0: Well, let's continue in our worship, and what wonderful songs, all focused on Christ today. That's the, the point of our lives. That's the point of our church. He is the head of our church. He is the head of every true church, and He is the King who will return. And so we're looking this morning at the supreme worthiness of Christ, the supreme worthiness of Christ. And one of the reasons I chose to start preaching the book of Luke when I did, when our church first started And spend those years in Luke that we just finished up. It's because I wanted us to focus on Christ when we started the church. There's a lot of various teachings in the Bible. But I wanted to hear from the words of Christ in the Gospels. And I have to admit, I've sort of missed preaching from Luke. But I want to return to just the topic of Christ, who He is today, as we look at Revelation chapter 5. If you would, open your Bibles. Revelation chapter 5. I'll be reading as usual from the NASB. If you didn't bring a Bible or you want to follow along in the NASB, there should be one in front of you under the chair. You're welcome to use that. We're looking at Revelation 5. I'll read to you 1 through 10. But we're looking just at the last two verses in the sermon. And this is an exposition really of verses 9 and 10. There's a lot to teach us about Christ and those two verses. But let me give you the context here. Revelation 5, 1-10. through 10. The Word of God reads, I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And they saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Today, many people have wrong views of Christ, wrong views of Jesus. Even professing Christians often have wrong views of Jesus. You hear people think that Jesus is a genie, and that they just rub the genie right they'll get what they want in life much of that's called the prosperity gospel but sometimes even non-prosperity churches will teach that as long as you put Jesus's name in a prayer as long as you say you're a Christian or or read your bible a little bit then somehow you'll get extra blessing from god some people think of Jesus only as a get out of jail free card which means they're not going to worry about him in this life until the very end then they'll consider Jesus and the gospel then they'll pull out the get-out-of-jail-free card and use it. Other people think that Jesus is just our best friend who's always there to approve of us. Whatever we do, Jesus is loving. Whatever we do, Jesus will accept us. God is love. Therefore, Jesus must approve of all things that people do or, or turn a blind eye to everything. Sometimes people think that God the Father is the wrathful vengeful God, and Jesus is the nice, friendly God. All of these wrong views of Jesus affect the way people worship Him. If they are truly believers, and they even accept any of these things and all the other things out there in the world that are wrong about Jesus, that affects their view of worship. How can you worship the King of Kings rightly if you don't even understand who He is and what He's done? You really could summarize the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with two main points. Who Jesus is and what he's done. And then the epistles and even the book of Revelation are are telling us who he is and what he's done and how we should live accordingly. Then, of course, in Revelation, we get to see what's coming in the future. And here we have this beautiful worship scene in heaven that I just read to you. It's a worship scene in heaven, one that we should strive to be like even here upon the earth. We want our worship to be like they worshipped him in this heavenly scene. They will worship him in this heavenly scene. The participants in this heavenly worship are four living creatures, as I read, and 24 elders. And they've all just fallen down at the feet of the Lamb. I think the living creatures here are the cherubim described in Ezekiel. If you match up their description in chapter 4 and 5 here with what's in Ezekiel 1, it was very similar. And I think these are the cherubim that, that fly around God's throne. They show his power, they show his might. They're protective, as if God needed protection, but that is their role. They're guardians. They were to be put upon the ark. The images of them were to put upon the ark to show that they guarded the seat of God, the mercy seat there on the ark of the covenant. And so the reason they're singing this song, the reason they're worshiping him, is that they found someone who's worthy to break the seals on that book. Really, it's a scroll. Our translation says book. Maybe your translation says scroll, but it's literally in the Greek a scroll. That's what they called a book. It's a, a long document rolled up and sealed across the place where the pages meet. And there's no one found in heaven or on earth. And John is sad because of this, because who's going to open it? It needs to be opened so that the events to come would happen, so that the whole earth would be restored, so that Christ could reign upon the earth. Well, in these ancient scrolls, often if the emperor or a wealthy man wanted to leave an inheritance, he would write it on the scroll, he would roll it up, and then as the scroll is rolled up, there would be witnesses who would come and they would stamp their seal on that crease. And the next guy would stamp his seal and the next guy would stamp his seal. And so to open that will of inheritance, you had to break those seals to see what it said. And so here we have a scroll that's fully written on the front and written on the back, which means there's a lot there. And it's to conserve space on ancient scrolls. They would use front and back and it's rolled up and sealed with seven seals. And they're looking for someone to break these seals and to read out the scroll. And it's interesting, we're never told what exactly is on the scroll. I think it's the inheritance deed for the earth. The actual Christ will reign upon the earth and he is the one who will reign. Because historical and cultural studies show that that's what it was used for. And these seals, as he breaks each one, it will enact judgment upon the earth. Before Christ will come to the earth and reign, these judgments have to occur. And so someone needs to break them. Who, who's worthy to break them? at the first no one in all creation. There's no one, it says, is worthy. You have to be worth something. You have to have value in God's sight. And there's no one that has a high enough value, a high enough merit to break that. No angels. Not Michael the archangel. He's not of high enough worthiness to break that and to open it and to read it? Who has enough value in God's eyes to inherit the world, in other words? Who? Who who can inherit the whole world, the whole universe and bring about its judgment? Who can bring about God's kingdom upon the earth as it is in heaven? That's the question that John brings to us here in this scene that he's looking at. It's a vision that God gives him, a vision of, of an event that will happen in the future and we finally find out there's only one person in heaven who can open it. The lion of Judah. He's a lion. He, he's a roaring lion. The king of Judah, in other words. The one who would rule all Israel and eventually rule all the earth. Yet when John looks, did you follow in the text there? When John looks, does he see a lion? They say there's one worthy and it's the lion of Judah. But John looks and what does he see? A little lamb. A little lamb. He doesn't see this strong lion, but he sees a little lamb. And the lion being a symbol of great strength, the lamb's the opposite. Helpless. Small. Innocent. Meek. Gentle. A sacrifice. There's symbolism here, teaching us of Christ. He's both the king of kings, the most powerful person. And yet at the same time, he's a meek, gentle, innocent sacrifice. Lambs are the most vulnerable of all sheep, and sheep are the most vulnerable of all animals. And here's Jesus described as a lamb, a tiny little lamb. It's no ordinary lamb, though. As you can see by his description in in verse 6, he's all-powerful. He's got these horns and these eyes, meaning he's all-powerful. He's an all-knowing Lord and Savior. And he's the only one who can accept that title. He's the only one who can break the seals and open it and enact what has to come. He is worthy. That's the point. He is worthy. What a great crescendo of worship this is. Every time we come to church, we want to worship like these are worshiping here. It'll be grander, it'll be greater in heaven. But we want to worship the Savior upon the earth as best we can. So according to these last two verses that I read to you, verses 9 and 10, it's showing us that Christ is worthy to open the scroll because of what he has done for the church. We often think, you know, of course Christ is going to reign upon the earth. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the king of kings. Perfect in every way. But what does the text tell us the reason they declare he's worthy to open the scroll? It's because of what he's done for us. What he's done for those in Christ. What he's done for the church. It's surprising if you read through it the first time. I mean, you expect them to say, you're worthy to take the book and to open it because you're the son of God, because you're ultimately powerful, because you are the greatest king who will ever reign upon the earth. But the song that they sing, the song that's never been sung before, is about what he's done for his people. What he's done for his people, ultimately for the glory of God. And there are many other places in Scripture that tell us what he's done that will make him worthy. But the focus here on what he's done for his people. So what I want you to see here in this new song is that these living creatures, these elders, are telling us that Christ should be worshipped by us today. Even though this hasn't happened yet in heaven, that, that we should worship him for the same reasons. He's worthy to open his scroll because of what he's done for us. What he's done for us. There's going to be three reasons that they give. They give us three reasons. And these are things taught throughout the New Testament. They won't surprise you if you read the Bible. But if you stop to consider them, if you stop to realize these things Christ has done for me and for you makes him worthy according to them, according to the angels, according to the church that is there, that makes him worthy to accept the deed, the inheritance to the earth. Three reasons. First of all, it says he was slaughtered for our sins. He was slaughtered for our sins. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, gave up his life for sinners. He laid down his life for sinners like you and I. And he allowed sinful men to slaughter him. To slaughter him as a sacrifice. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. What's the first reason they say he's worthy? For or because you were slain and literally the greek word there means slaughtered to kill an animal or person violently he didn't just fall over dead he didn't die of old age he didn't die in battle he gave up himself to be slaughtered like a lamb would in the sacrifice of passover this idea points back to exodus the nation of israel is coming out of egypt and god tells them to take a lamb a little lamb, and bring it into their home for four days. little lamb would become their pet. little lamb would be loved on by the kids, and they would hug that little lamb and give him a name. And then they would have to sacrifice it. They would have to kill it. And then take the blood and smear it over the doorposts. And this blood was a sign that God would pass over them when he was judging all of Egypt. He would pass over them. Their firstborn would not die like the firstborn of Egypt. And so God told Israel to celebrate the Passover every year to remember this. A lamb offered up as sacrifice. Well, Isaiah 53 also grabs that image from Exodus and and brings it forward and applies it to the Messiah. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. Familiar passage. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, He did not open his mouth. He gave up his life willingly. No one, he said, he said, no one can take it from me unless I give it up. And he's going to follow the Father's will and give up his life willingly at the cross. And Isaiah prophesied of this, that there would be one who came and he would give up his life like a sheep that is slaughtered the sacrificial death of Christ. He was, he was slain. He was slaughtered for sinners. It's the central theme of the New Testament. What Christ has done for sinners. It's the gospel. That he's died on the cross and that he's raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And anyone who believes in him, anyone who trusts in him alone can receive forgiveness, can receive salvation. And they will not receive condemnation. As they're celebrating the Lord's Supper as we'll celebrate today, as they were celebrating the very first Lord's Supper, Jesus applies the idea of a sacrificial lamb to himself because it's the night of Passover and it's just before his crucifixion and the disciples are celebrating the Passover feast and he changes it right in the middle of the meal. Would have shocked the disciples. They would have been surprised. What is he doing? He's he's teaching something different than we're used to and he applies it to himself. He says that he's going to be the sacrifice now. This idea that a lamb would go and be sacrificed for each family in Israel. Now Jesus says he's going to be the lamb. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that. This is my blood of the covenant. It's my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. It's a symbol of his death on the cross. And it matches up with the Passover lambs. Because you didn't just offer up your lamb every year at the temple. You, as the head of each household, the man would have to go up, the father, and he would lead the lamb and maybe bring his teenage sons with him. And each man would have to cut the lamb's throat himself. And then the priest would do the work of of butchering the lamb and offering it up. And then give it back to the man to take home to eat the Passover meal. So you were very aware of the blood. You were very aware of the sacrifice, the death that had to occur. So that God would pass over the sins of each family. This is what Christ did for us. He said he was going to give his life on the cross. That he was going to die for sinners. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you hear the word slaughtered and you never thought about that. That Christ was actually slaughtered. You hear it and you're, you're a bit put off. You're a bit recoiling at that word. But he didn't just die. It wasn't a natural death. It was actually a death where he gave up his life, a bloody death, a violent death. They beat him, they hit him, they scourged him, they put a crown of thorns on him, they nailed nails in through his bones and his wrists and his feet, his ankles. But death didn't conquer him. He did this to save sinners, but death did not conquer him. He conquered death. If we were to go back to Revelation 5 here and look at verse 6. And it between the throne with four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Now imagine what John's seeing here. He's seeing a lamb that's standing up, but it looks like it's been slain. Which is probably an image of all the blood coming down its throat and down onto its chest. It looks like it should have already died and been slain. And then he describes what the lamb looks like with this all-knowing, all-powerful lamb. He should have died, and he did, because they killed him in his flesh. Of course he would die a human death. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And by his own power and by the power of God, he was raised again on the third day. And he's no longer slain. So when John sees this image, he was slain for us, but he was raised again. A promise for us. We do not worship a Christ who's buried in the ground. We don't worship a Christ who's still on the cross. You know, all of these crucifixes that you see out there in Roman Catholicism aren't accurate. One of the main reasons we don't use a crucifix in Protestantism is because Christ is no longer on the cross. And in addition, we don't think that there's a magical help by wearing a crucifix, of course, but he's not still on the cross. He's off the cross. He was put in the ground, he was buried, and he was raised again. So when we worship him, do we realize that? Do we realize when we take the Lord's Supper that he's slain for us? That he was slaughtered for us. A violent death. A bloody death. It's not some cute little Bible story in a kid's book. Jesus is such a nice guy. He just gave his life for me. How oh, he was beaten. He was punished. And that doesn't even describe the wrath of God that was poured upon him. during those three hours of darkness. Do we worship him rightly? Do we worship him uh, as he is worthy? Like they will in heaven someday? And he hung on the cross for six hours. And three of it was in the dark. And three of it, the the father was pouring out his wrath on Christ. for, For all the sinners that would believe in him. He poured out the wrath for three hours in the darkness. For six hours he hung on that cross. And we have trouble worshiping him for an hour sometimes. We want to fall asleep sometimes in church just for the hour, hour and a half that we worship. Or, or we can't pray to him or read our Bibles at home because we're weak, as Paul said. 2 Corinthians 13, we're weak in the flesh. And yet look what he did for us. Look what he did for us. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy always of our worship because he was slain. Secondly, Secondly, the text here says that he freed us from slavery. He has freed us from slavery. Every person, every person in the world is a slave to sin. Everyone who's ever been born is a slave to sin except for Christ. And of course, Adam and Eve started out not being slaves to sin, but they went under the yoke of of sin when they did fall. But Christ is the only perfect one. Everyone else is a slave to sin. None are righteous. No, not one, Paul says in Romans 3. So we're under slavery to sin. We're under slavery to Satan. Ephesians 2, that we follow the the prince of the power of the air. Before you were saved in Christ, you you followed Satan, whether you realized it or not. The Bible says you did. If we trust the Bible, then that's what it teaches. But those who are in Christ have been freed from this. And he's worthy to inherit the earth, it says, because he's freed us from this slavery. Look at verse 9, the rest of it. You purchased for God with your blood. So he was slain. That's his sacrifice. But what did that slaying accomplish? What did that sacrifice accomplish? That's the second reason here. He freed us from slavery. The word purchased means literally to secure the rights to someone by paying a price. By ransoming. By redeeming them. It's redemption. It's slave market language. In the ancient world, you go to the slave market, you would redeem a slave by paying for them, by buying them. That's what Christ has done. It's the same exact language in the original Greek. It's the idea that Christ has paid, he's redeemed those who are in slavery to sin. The same idea is used by Paul. The same word, actually, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you have been bought with a price. Christ paid a price and he bought you. He has bought those in Christ. Slave market language. Everyone would understand that. There were slaves all over the empire in Paul's day. And in John's day. And you could be redeemed. You could be set free if somebody would pay the price to do that. This is what Christ has done for believers. He set us free. It wasn't just a sacrifice to symbolize something. It was a sacrifice to accomplish something. He paid the price for us to be set free. Not to Satan. Even though we were in bondage to Satan, Christ doesn't owe Satan anything. He didn't pay the price to Satan. Christ paid the price to the Father. God's justice demands payment. And the wages of sin are death. They're death. And so we we deserve eternal punishment. We deserve eternal death. And it says that Christ redeemed us from that with his blood. With his blood. This payment freed us. It freed us and from our bondage to Satan in sin sense that we can truly worship God so we can truly obey Him so we can truly live out our life for God. Mark says it like this, Mark ten forty five, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom. See that word ransom? Ransom for many. He's a ransom. We've been abducted by sin. We've been abducted by Satan and, and Christ paid the ransom to set us free. Not to Satan, but to God. God allowed Satan to do that. He allowed us to do that until the moment we have faith, the moment we repent of our sins, then the applied redemption, it gets applied to us and we're set free. We now belong to Christ. We're now slaves of Christ. We're not free to do what we want. We're not free to to live as we like. We're free to live for Christ. And he actually calls us a slave of Christ, Paul does in Romans, contrasting it with slavery to sin. But you need to realize when he bought you, it was a definite transaction. It was definite. If you're in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, he bought you on that cross. He paid the price for you, and he paid exactly what you needed to be saved. It was a particular redemption. Some would call a limited atonement. I don't think the word limited really describes it as well as particular. Specifically, definitely. It wasn't potential. Christ didn't pay the price for your sins and then sit back and hope that you might just believe. Jesus wouldn't say that. He knew exactly who he's putting down that payment for. He's the son of God, as if he didn't know. Not just know who would believe someday, but he actually paid the price so that you would believe someday. It's not hypothetical, in other words. It's not, it's not something potentially out there. It, it's a There's a finality to his purchase. It's an exact atonement, an exact payment on the cross. He actually paid the price for those given to him by the Father. We'll see that in the next verse. He actually paid the price for those given to him by the Father. An exact payment. There's no change left over. And there's no short change either. You know, he didn't pay just 99% of what was owed to set us free. And he's waiting for us to pay the rest. It was a full payment. You know, we sing that all the time. We sing, Jesus paid it all. You know that song? Jesus paid it all. Not Jesus paid some of it. Imagine if we got up here and say, Jesus paid some of it. Jesus paid some of it. He was waiting for us to contribute the rest. He paid it all on the cross. All of it. He laid down his life for those of his sheep. It was not up to us to finish that work. It says here, you purchase for God with your blood. Not that you purchased and waited someday for those who would do something. He went ahead and purchased them. And in time, it's applied to us as we believe and repent. It's all the work of God. It says, while we were yet sinners, it says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're still sinners. We're still sinners. And Christ died for us. And saves us. What did he pay though? What did he pay with? Look at verse 9. What did he pay the ransom with? It doesn't say his strength. It doesn't say his power. It doesn't say his almighty wisdom, even though he is wise. It's not by God given authority or his dominion on the earth. He could have done those things. He could have paid for it like that. That wasn't the plan of God, though. That wasn't the plan of the Father. The Lamb of God purchased for God a people with his own blood, his own death. That's how he did it. He had to die in our place, his violent death on the cross. And what did it accomplish it? It bought a people for God's own possession. He paid that price so people would come and be God's own possession. Now, do you think people can fall out of being God's own possession? I mean, there's another great verse here to show that God will persevere all those whom Christ paid for. People struggle sometimes. Will I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Am I saved? Well, if you truly save, it says that he will make sure you last until the end. Because he's already paid the price. Can you imagine that he would pay the price and then somehow later the account gets changed and you fall away from the faith? Now he's already paid the price. Of course we have to persevere, but God is persevering in us so that we will persevere. If we believe, if we've repented, if Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, if we examine ourselves and know that he's our Lord, we have hope. We have hope. What did this death accomplish? Look at the rest of verse 9. For you were slain. You were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He bought people from out of all these groups. He bought them from everywhere. This is why uh, what they call racism, there's only one race, the human race, but racism is not in the Bible because he buys people from everywhere. First of all, there was only one race created, the human race. And then secondly, Jesus buys people from all kinds of tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. Tribes represent genealogical descent. Tongues represent different languages in the world. Peoples are different ethnic groups. Nations are various national identities. No matter how you slice up humanity, Christ has paid the price for some out from all of those groups. You notice it says, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You see that word from? It's literally from out of. Maybe your translation even says that. From out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Not that every single person will be saved. That's not what he's saying. But all kinds of people everywhere throughout history. Throughout history. Even before Christ came? Yes. Children who, I believe, children who die in the womb. Miscarriages. Miscarriages, babies who died at birth. That's the only way this verse could be accomplished throughout history. From every single tribe, every single tongue, every single people, every nation. He, he bought them from out of. Again, talking about a particular redemption. He knew exactly who he was paying the price for. People from out of each of these groups. This goes back to Genesis twelve three. In you, he's telling Abraham, God is. Genesis twelve three. In you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of them. Go back to Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 7. This was probably one of our most quoted uh, Old Testament verses as we went through the Gospel of Luke. Daniel 7 verse 9. And Daniel here, he's looking ahead with the vision God gives him. I think he's seeing the same thing that we read in, in Revelation 5. It matches up there. The same scene. Daniel 7.9 I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. So the ancient of days is God the Father. And his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat And the books were opened. Now skip over to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. A Messiah. A son of man. A a human figure, it seems like. But he's coming up before the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So this isn't just a mere human. This is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ but he's given the dominion, he's given the right to rule upon the earth in glory and glory in a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's going to rule over a kingdom that has people from every different grouping that you could imagine upon the earth. There's no partiality with God. He's going to save people out from everyone. He's already paid the price for it. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, the Jewish fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. They will hear his voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He's going to call out to them. He's going to call out to their hearts, divine calling, and they're going to come to him and be one flock with one shepherd. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. You know, sometimes people say, you know, Calvinists, those who are reformed, those who believe in election, those who see election taught in the Bible, which it is, they don't evangelize. They don't like to evangelize because there's an elect and, you know, God will save who he saves. Of course, we know the Bible tells us to go out and make disciples. But history hasn't proven that's the case either because some of the first missionaries were of that group of Calvinists, of reformers. In fact, the, the father of the modern missions movement. William Carey, the Baptist who, who, who struggled to go to the mission field. And nobody would support him. And then finally they had to give him some money and he went. The father of modern missions, because all missionaries after that followed. He said he was going to India because of this verse, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. He said, I'm going there because I know. He said, he knew that there were people ordained to eternal life there. Because if God has saved people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, there must be people that are gods in India. He's going there to preach the gospel so they can hear it and be saved. And this is the gospel. That Christ was slain for us. And that he purchased for the, the Father. He purchased a kingdom. He purchased a people that would be in that kingdom. This is the one who knew no sin and he became he who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He didn't become a sinner but he took on sin. He was perfectly righteous. He took on our sin. He he took it away and he gave us his perfect righteousness. That's the heart of the gospel. I mean that's the gospel that needs to return to the pulpits of today's churches. Why are churches in America not preaching the fact that Christ died for sinners? That if we trust in him That payment will apply to us. And if we trust in Him and repent, that we can be saved. Why are we not preaching that all throughout the true and even untrue churches in America? They need to truly preach the gospel. They're just going to wander off and fall apart or they're going to continue to waver back and forth. And the gospel has implications to live by after you're saved too. Because He's purchased us. Everyone thinks they know what Christianity is about. You talk to an unbeliever and they say, yeah, I know what Christianity is about. And they'll tell you a specific thought that they have about Christianity. But here's what it's about right here. It's about Christ being slain for us and purchasing us as sinners. That's the heart of it. It's the heart of the gospel that he was raised again on the third day. Everyone thinks they know what Christianity is about. But most have only heard false gospels, watered down gospels, the gospel of nice, you can hear that down the road. Just the gospel of nice. Everything's nice. Jesus is nice. You be nice. Everything's great. Most of them don't know. They don't understand the real gospel that was preached by Jesus and his apostles. Actually, denominations are taking that song in Christ alone, and they're taking out that verse that says, the wrath of God was put on Christ. God, God's loving let's take that one out and then we'll still sing the rest of the hymn. I was doing jail ministry in, in LA and big county jail there and uh, we would go in there on Saturday mornings to do Bible studies and we really just worked through the gospel each week. We took a different you know, creation and man and God and sin and we got to Christ and there was a guy in there named Rudy and he would give us his testimony in time and he told us he, you know, he, he was there for white collar uh, crime and he thought he'd been there long enough he should have gotten out. He didn't understand why his appeals and stuff weren't going through and they weren't letting him out because he'd been there a couple of years. You're, you're a Christian now? And he gave me his testimony. He, he was saved and he, he said, you know, I just remember that God's put me here for a reason and I've got to go to my fellow prisoners. He spoke Spanish and he says, I, I've got to reach them for the gospel. Saying that I need to reach out and tell them the gospel. God had put them there to spread this message of the gospel. That's what we need to believe in of course, but proclaim as well. So it was a, a great story that as long as God kept him there, he was going to proclaim the gospel. He, was gonna take, he would take his Bibles into these barracks that we couldn't go, but all the, the ones that were in there could go in and proclaim the gospel. That's what it's about. So we've seen the first reason that he was slain for us. Second reason that he, he's purchased us, that he's freed us from slavery. The last one, he's consecrated us for service. He's consecrated us for service to God when Christ saves a person he doesn't leave them as they are that's that's the biggest myth out there when it comes to the gospel right now that that you can be saved and that there's no change the rest of your life you're just going to look the same do the same believe the same no he saves us he justifies us and then he sanctifies us we see that all throughout scripture especially in this passage It just lines up perfectly. He was slain, he purchased, and then he consecrated us. He consecrated us so that we could serve God. He makes us holy so that we can serve him. Look at verse 10. He made them, who's the them? The people that he purchased. He made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. They will reign. What's the context of this verse? Well, the saints are there worshiping in heaven. I believe this is the the raptured church here, because later in in chapter 7 of Revelation, it'll say the tribulation saints are calling out under the altar. The raptured church here, they're awaiting the wrath to come, they're awaiting the kingdom so that they can reign with him, it says. And he says that he made them, past tense, into a kingdom. Well, there are people in heaven, how is that a kingdom? Well, there, there are the people who will make up the kingdom. A kingdom has people in it. And throughout history, Christ has been applying that redemption to each person who believes. And when they die, they go to be with him, or in the rapture of the church, they go to be with him. And so they're all there, worshiping him. He's about to open the scroll. Then we see, in the context of Revelation, all these judgments come upon the earth. If you take it literally, which, that's the way to take it. And he made them. He's already He's already redeemed them. Their kingdom of people Waiting. To go with him. They're 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 saying he's worthy to open the deed so they can go and be with him upon the earth. They will get their time to rule. And this group will be joined by the tribulation saints. Let's just look at that in Revelation seven. Go to seven nine, Revelation seven nine. See where I'm getting this. After these things, John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures so it picks up the elders and four living creatures from the revelation 5 they're also there but this great multitude along with those, fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? So this is interesting, a vision that John's having. An elder asked John, Who are they? Who are these people that you see in white robes? And John says, my Lord, you know. And so this elder says to John, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Because remember, during the tribulation, they are running. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's redeemed a vast number of people, a vast number who will be in that kingdom upon the earth. And they're just waiting for him to reign. They're waiting. And verse 10, it's alluding back to the purpose that God has chosen Israel in the Old Testament even. They would be a people for his own possession. Israel was to be a people for God's own possession. They failed, but God's not done with them, Romans 11. But he has saved people from all tribes, tongues, people, and nations. And he's consecrated them to be a kingdom for him. God's grace has been widened outside the Jews. That's what the New Testament is all about. Thank God it is. Most of us are Gentiles. Gentiles. Israel became God's holy nation when he brought them out of bondage to Egypt. But but believers in the church age become God's holy nation when Christ redeems them from the bondage of sin. See, when God saved them out of Egypt, he said, here's my law, follow it if you're my people. And what they say in Exodus 19, we will, we will, we love you, Lord. They showed that they didn't actually do that, not all of them. But now when we're redeemed from bondage, we should follow God. He's given us a new covenant. He's given us the Holy Spirit in us. And Peter brings this forward, 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Applied to Israel there, applied to the church in Peter's day. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. thought that was just Israel. No, that's all that he saves. They're all his people. They're all saved for a purpose. You were saved for a purpose. A purpose in this life, but a purpose in eternity as well. The purpose of reigning with Christ it says that we will reign. You see that? Revelation 5, verse 10. We will reign with them. I thought he was going to reign. We will reign with him. They will reign upon the earth. Reigning is a, a term used for kings in the Bible. Those of us in Christ will be helping him to rule. Not that he needs help, but he's blessing us as a reward. As we reign with him upon the earth. He tells the disciples. Some of you will be head over this city. And over that village. And over that city. Those rewards. That's not why we serve him. But it's a benefit of serving Christ. He promises blessings. In that state. In the kingdom. Can you imagine what that will be like? To reign with a perfect government upon the earth. No corrupt politicians. No annoying uh, laws being passed. Bad judges, perfect reign with Christ. But before we can even do that, there's this word here. You see that in in 5.10? And priest who are God. Not just the kingdom, but priest. We'll be priests. We'll, We'll be cleansed. We are being cleansed. We have been cleansed by Christ. We continue to be cleansed in sanctification. So we can be priests, purified. You know, in the Old Testament, what happened to a priest when he went up to make sacrifice? He had to go through all these rituals, these cleansing, these baths, to signify his own sin. But Christ has made us priests. We don't have to go through that. We don't have to be from the, the tribe of Levi. We don't have to go through all the sacrificial offerings and washings. Because under the new covenant, he, he's made us priests to God. The priesthood of all believers. You can serve God. You you are a priest in a sense and you will be ruling with him in the kingdom as a priest. Not doing the sacrifices, no. Not, not doing the mass like the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but serving God with a pure heart, purified hands. Purified like the priests. He died, Christ died so that God would have this holy kingdom and this priesthood to serve him. Why is he worthy to open the scroll because it's what he's done for us but ultimately it's what he's done for the father from him and through him and to him are all things so ultimately it's for god's glory we're not glorified because he's done these things for us he's being worshiped because of that but it doesn't come back to us look how special we are some people proclaim the gospel like that god thought you were so special christ gave his life for you his creation is special he, he does love His creation. But He didn't redeem you because of what you are when you're an unbeliever. He redeemed you for His own purposes and so that, that purpose includes someday being a priest serving Him forever and ever. It's a great worship song here in, in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Because of what Christ has done, we can worship Him today. We ought to worship Him like that. We ought to think of Him as worthy when we do worship. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. You've been Trusting in your own works. Do you hear what this is saying? Do Do you see what the passage is saying? That he was slain for sinners like you and me. Jesus has never turned away anyone who's come to him. He was slain for sinners like you and me. You've got to die to yourself. Take up your cross, he said, and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. He's died so that we're even able to do that. There'll be two groups of people when this actually happens. Revelation 5 When this actually happens in heaven, there'll be two groups of people those who are worshiping Him in heaven with Him, or those who are upon the earth going through the wrath of God. Yeah, some will be saved out of that, but you don't know if that's going to be you. Don't wait. Don't wait. We don't know when Christ is coming back. We don't know when the wrath of God will actually happen upon the earth. We don't have a timeline. We don't know the date. You want to be with the people worshiping Christ in heaven. He, he's worth it. His worth is without measure. He's an infinite value. We must come before him. Or we'll suffer eternal wrath. We love Christ here at Grace Bible Church. We want to worship him. He's our ultimate worthy king. I want to conclude by reading from my favorite guy to quote in sermons, Charles Spurgeon. As believers, listen to how we ought to think of Christ. Spurgeon says, You and I cannot have two lofty thoughts of Jesus. We err in not thinking enough of him. Let our estimate of him grow. Let us cry with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Oh, for great thoughts of Jesus. Oh, to set him on the highest imaginable throne and the conceptions of our soul and to make every power and faculty of our manhood fall prostrate like the elders before him. While whatever of honor God may put upon us, we cast always at his feet and ever say with heart and lip and act, Thou art worthy, Jesus, Emmanuel, Redeemer, who has purchased us by thy blood. Worthy art thou. Worthy art thou forever and ever. Amen. Do you think like that? Should you think like that as believers? It's a great time now to do so as we take the Lord's Supper. But I do thank you, God, for this passage. It's a scene in heaven, a worship scene that's a model for us. We need to worship and think of Christ and what he's done for us. And what ultimately he's done to honor you, Father. Change our hearts. Even even as believers, we need to be shaped and modeled so that we can worship fully with the right heart, with the right mind, with the right spirit. And I pray that even now, as we consider his body and his blood shed for us, that you would impress that upon our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen.